Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into the healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. The world and our lives have changed substantially since many of the social media platforms we know and rely upon began emerging almost 20 years ago. It's hard to believe that LinkedIn started in 2002, Facebook followed two years after that, and Twitter two years later in 2006. Instagram would follow in 2010, and TikTok has just launched six years ago and already has about a billion users worldwide. To say that these and many other platforms dominate our media landscape today would be an understatement. And indeed, these are not just social platforms, these platforms have truly come to dominate our lives and become actual media channels, with 75% or more of Americans using these very platforms. Yet very few who work in healthcare today actually grew up with these channels, and very few of us were trained on the use of these tools when they were learning how to communicate professionally. And the power of these media platforms available to pretty much everyone means that many of us are playing catch up, both in terms of how to use them and how to guard against the threats that have come with this technology. If the power of these platforms wasn't already obvious, the world took notice with the first Arab Spring in 2010, and then again in 2014 with the Ukraine's revolution of dignity, which changed the government. In those examples, many lauded social media as democracy at work, as these platforms gave voice and power to every individual and citizen. But as evidenced most recently in the aftermath of Trump's failed re-election and the ensuing attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, or here in Canada with the rise of the Freedom Convoy protests and also by anti-vaxxer movements during COVID, these platforms have a tremendous power to do harm as well, and they fundamentally disrupted our trust in information, including the news. But what does all this mean to healthcare and to healthcare professionals? How is it disrupting healthcare today? And what role does it play as we move forward? What are the risks? What are the opportunities? To say this is a big topic would be a bigger understatement, but it is certainly an interesting and important topic, which I'm thrilled to discuss with Catherine Smart, the current president of the Canadian Medical Association, who has made the topic a central pillar of her presidency. Dr. Smart worked in pediatrics for over 20 years. She moved to Whitehorse in the Yukon to implement a new collaborative model of pediatric care to serve marginalized children. She works primarily with children who have experienced trauma and adverse childhood events, and she witnesses the broad and lasting impacts these events have on children and their development daily. A passionate advocate for improving services for all children, Dr. Smart also provides acute care at the hospital. Prior to moving to Canada's North, she was a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Alberta Children's Hospital in Calgary and the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. In serving as the CMA president, she is the 10th woman to access this role in 154 years. She is mom to two kids, a fur friend, a wife, and an active member of her own community. Hi, Catherine, and welcome to the HQ. Hello, Dale. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to have you here today and discuss this really, really interesting topic. So um, maybe, Catherine, we could start with, you know, how did this become an important part of your presidency? Was that a part of your plan or or did this sort of evolve as you took over uh, the office? I think both things sort of happened. You know, when I was looking at 
the potential of running for CMA president, we had to offer some suggestions on things that we thought the organization could do or improve on. And it was one of the spaces where I thought the CMA could be having more impact. I thought it was a great way to engage with our grassroots members and, and get information out to them about what the organization was doing um, and to try to create more sense of involvement. You know, of course, one of the challenges when you have a big organization like the CMA is, is how do you make people feel like they're part of it or that they know what's happening, especially this day and age when we're all inundated with emails and information from so many sources. So I felt that it could be a, an engagement tool uh, for myself and for the organization. What I didn't anticipate at that point, I don't think, was what we've seen with the pandemic and just how that rise of misinformation would make those same tools really important in engaging the public and sharing information with them and trying to establish myself as a trusted source of information, particularly for parents, as they've had to make decisions about their children over the past two years of the pandemic. So for me, it's really been two things, a way to engage with colleagues, but also a way to engage with the public and try to position information in a way that's accessible and meaningful for them. So, um... Maybe so we could sort of, I guess, talk then a little bit about what are the challenges in medicine with respect to the use of social media from your perspective? That's such a great question. You know, medicine has always been about the doctor-patient relationship. That's always been at the heart of what we do, and, and it always will be. But I think what's interesting right now is how that definition of that doctor-patient relationship might be evolving. You know, we're in a situation right now in our country where we have assumed that Canadians have access to a trusted source of medical information to make their health decisions. But more and more, that's not the case. You know, we were aware that over 5 million Canadians don't have access to a family care physician, which has always been that foundational relationship that people have had and that source of trusted health information. In, in parallel to that, we've had this evolution of the social media environment where so many people now are going to get information. So we've got sort of declining access to experts, increasing access to information. We know that on social media, health information is often poor. In fact, a recent study showed that 87% of posts about health on social media contain some sort of misinformation. So we're in a, a really, I think, critical time and we have to reimagine ourselves a bit as physicians and what our role is in terms of stepping into the public to share information and to counter mis misinformation in an effort to improve the health of the public as a whole and communities and to make sure that individuals have access to trusted sources to access information. So that is very different, I, I think, than how most of us envisioned ourselves when we started this road of being a physician. But I think more and more it's a, an evolution or a change that we all need to consider. And the challenges, of course, is that means we haven't been trained in it. It's not a competency. It's, it's not something everyone's necessarily thought about. And I think it can challenge some of our traditional notions of professional professionalism. And it's something that I think we all need to consider uh, as we move forward and into the future about what all this means and how we're going to navigate these challenges. So what's the risk, Catherine, if we don't do that? I think the risk really is the rise of misinformation and the real threat to health that that can bring. And, you know, as the pandemic's evolved, I think we're already seeing some tangible examples of that. You know, of course, a lot of the misinformation around COVID was really focused on, on the vaccinations and their safety. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge rise of misinformation spreading false information. And it's had a really profound impact. You know, recent polling showed that 
one in five Canadians believe that thousands of people have died from the COVID vaccine and that that has been covered up. And another one in four Canadians believe that that was possibly true. So this is literally, you know, close to 7 million people in our country who really have a mistrust in science and information coming from experts that I think has been a direct result of misinformation. That same polling showed that one in four Canadians either believed or thought it was possible that the vaccine contained a microchip that might control their behavior. One in four people. I mean, that's an incredible number that are susceptible to that clear misinformation. So what I think has happened is this problem has moved from being perhaps a fringe issue or something that we assumed was a small number of people to making its way into the mainstream concerns of average people who are now having questions about scientists, about experts. Uh, it's fueled mistrust. And we're starting to see that really reflect in a practical way in terms of childhood vaccinations. You know, one in four Canadian children has fallen behind in their routine vaccinations during the pandemic. This has been particularly bad for the, some of our vaccines, like the human papillomavirus, where uptake has dropped to less than 10%. This is a vaccine that prevents cancer. Mm -hmm. Globally, we've seen you know, 22 million infants not receive their first dose of measles, which is the largest step backwards in childhood vaccination in 20 years. And we're seeing reemergence of things like polio in areas of the world where it had been eradicated. So the, the threats that this has created, like the real life impact in terms of people's decision making, hesitancy around things that are well established in science and arguably have been some of our biggest public health advances are real. And we're going to see the impact of that over the coming years as we start to see diseases we have not been seeing pop up and influence some of our most vulnerable, which are our children. Yeah, so you, you paint a, a pretty clear picture that this is a health issue um, and has impact, as you said, will we'll have a long tail in terms of its impact. So, and, and, you know, physicians and other clinicians should obviously care about that. They're not, I guess, you're not social media sort of experts in your, in terms of controlling that. Um, so how do you, how do, how do you get in front of that? Or how do you change the hearts and minds of the people you're interacting with or change the, as the way our culture is behaving? I think, you know, the first part is just realizing that it is a very real threat. You know, I think it's easy to minimize these things as, as a small group of people or a fringe issue. And, and like we were just talking about, you know, that's not true. So I think we need to put that information ecosystem really kind of on our list of social determinants of health, because it is going to be fundamental to the health of our population. And, and then, you know, position that our resources and our skill building around that recognition. So I think that's really important. I think that we need to give physicians the skills to engage in these spaces um, so that people can feel more confident putting themselves out there to the public. Uh, and that may not be a skill that people had really considered when they entered the profession. Of course, like everything in medicine, you don't need everyone doing the exact same thing. That's one of the beauties of the profession is it has a lot of options for different types of people to engage in different things. But I think for folks that have this interest and a willingness to be health communicators, we need to make sure that they're supported and that they have access to the skills and the infrastructure to compete with some of these folks that are 
now health influencers and, and are really being quite effective at garnering these huge followings and, and promoting a lot of anti-science things. You know, all you have to do is just look at the supplement industry, the alternative medicine industry. I mean, people spend billions of dollars on these things that really have very little or no science behind their benefit. So I, I think it is an, an issue of public trust. It's an issue of us being willing to engage, but then we need to be able to put some resources into that to make sure people do feel that they have the skills. And I think we need to, you know, modernize a bit of how we communicate. And, and I think, again, you know, during the pandemic, what were a lot of public health teams using, you know, a lot of traditional press conferences, media conferences, some were more involved in, in social media. But I think, you know, people aren't necessarily getting their information anymore from those sources. So I think we've got to be on spaces like TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, where a lot more people are interacting and package our information differently for different ages and different segments of the population. So it's more accessible and we're hitting people from multiple angles. I think we can't just assume everyone's going to read the newspaper, listen to the traditional radio or tune into a press conference. We've got to be more nimble and we've got to be in some of these other spaces to make sure our narrative is there to counter the anti-science narrative. Yeah, well, it, yeah, and you raise a good point. You have to go to you know where the people are, and if they're not in the traditional sort of media sources, then um, it's really hard to counteract that in that space. What's the risk, I guess, if physicians start to engage in some of these places where they haven't been trained, or they themselves perhaps you know like like many haven't grown up in that space? I think the biggest risk we're seeing right now, tangible risk, is really the harassment and intimidation that comes with that. Um, it's really quite unbelievable, I think, the degree of harassment and intimidation physicians who have been really active online have experienced. And that's, again, something new. You know, we're not used to, as physicians, being public figures and, and the sort of threats to us directly that come from that. I think that's something that politicians have lived with for a long time, as the media as well. But it's new, I think, uh, for people in healthcare. So that's something I think that we need to reflect on is, is how do we protect people? And, and we are doing some work on that at the CMA. You know, we've been successful this year in having Bill C-3 passed, which makes it illegal to harass or intimidate a healthcare professional who's trying to do their work. And that's going to also extend into online spaces. So I think there's awareness building there. We're also working with social media platforms around use to, to be able to educate physicians with the skills, but also how to use those tools to limit the harassment and intimidation. Because I think that the risk there, of course, is it drives the burnout that's already plaguing our profession. It can be scary and it can kind of push people out of those spaces. So we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to limit that as much as possible. It's never going to be zero, but to try to make it uh, tolerable um, and, and also to try to make sure that we're creating the skills for physicians so that they know how to navigate there. I think that's important. I think the other risk is whenever you're out there publicly is, is you know, you're, you're sort of making yourself vulnerable, right? If you say the wrong thing or someone misinterprets what you say, and there's some personal risk there in terms of if you bumble something and, and then all of a sudden you're called out for that and you may suffer some personal or professional consequences. So I think we need to make sure that that people are, are thinking about the tone that they want to use, how they want to present themselves to the public, um, and, and what the risks and benefits are there depending on how you position yourself. Because it is a different type of relationship uh, than what we're used to having, and it comes with a different set of risks. So I, I guess one of the other questions I have in that maybe as a follow-up is 
I'm, I think back to my own sort of, you know, younger relationships with physicians, which had this, you know, there, there was always a, a bit of a barrier in terms of our intimacy or, or connection with them. And, and you're going to see a professional, you refer to them by doctor. Um, and, and there's a, like I said, there's a bit of a distance in that space. Um, but, you know, many of us probably grew up thinking, you know, was synonymous with respect. How does that change when the physician you're going to interact with has a social media presence um, in a public space? So suddenly it's not a person that I only see once a year in a doctor's office, but now I can see their politics, their values and everything else on, on display. Absolutely. It does really shift that, you know, it does create a level of intimacy or familiarity that may be different. And that's again, why I think people need to really be active about choosing, I guess you could say the brand or the version of themselves they want to put out there, you know, are you creating a social media presence that's really largely professional, and doesn't have anything to do with your personal life, and that's what's out there for everyone to see? Or are you blending those two things together? And that, of course, then comes with, with different risks around how those relationships may shift as people know different things about you. And I, I think for each of us, you know, what those relationships look like with our patients can be very variable, how people perceive what being professional is can be variable. And I, I think every doctor has a bit of a, a different feeling about how much connection they have to their patients outside of those direct doctor patient interactions. And I think we're already seeing that happen, you know, on things like Facebook, where perhaps your patients friend you or they start following your Instagram, these types of things are already mm -hmm. happening. Um, and I think you know, there is this sort of, I think what's going to happen a bit is this renegotiation of the doctor-patient relationship. The other space that's coming from, I think, is, is data, interoperability, access to medical records, sharing mm -hmm. of information, and, and in increasing expectation, I think, from the public that they have access to their physician offline, so to speak, meaning there's more desire for sort of being able to message your physician after hours or reach out to them for information, that's also evolving. So I think, you know, what we're really seeing is this whole doctor-patient relationship is sort of changing. Um, and I think what we need to do is recognize that and be thoughtful and intentional about, about what that looks like, what the boundaries need to be to make it uh, reasonable for folks. Because of course, you can't be available to people 24-7. I think that needs to be a conversation with patients. We talk a lot about bringing patients to in to co-design the system. And, and I don't think we've figured out how to do that yet. But I think this conversation is an example of why that will also be important because we need to be able to negotiate that with our patients. What does that look like? What are these new rules, I guess you could say, in this world that's that's really changing? So I think we need to give some thought to that because I think whenever you do something not having thought about it, you can end up with a lot of unintended consequences. And mm -hmm. sometimes that's not good. And it's much harder to dial things back when they've already gone wrong than to have tried to sort of anticipate ahead of time some of, some of these issues and, and how to navigate them. Yeah, the, the scientific method would be certainly to trial it and pilot it and work at all the data so that you remove all the risks. But I don't think technologies and social media in that space is something that we can probably fully predict. And it, there are probably going to be some un unintended consequences that we will have to renegotiate. Yes, I agree. So I guess maybe part of the, the more challenging part for me is also understanding that, I mean, 
in the use of social media, you, I mean, you're using it both as Catherine, or Catherine Smart, you're using it as Dr. Smart. The two perhaps become a bit indistinguishable in certain spaces and, and many physicians, right? I mean, they're all people um, with their own personal interests and um, opinions and, and values and have a right to protest or, or um, you know, I guess to, to speak their minds in some of these spaces. So how, how does that, I guess, how do you balance that in some of those spaces when your opinions may do harm or may have other kinds of consequences um, or maybe even contrary to the rest of your professional practice? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I think the first thing is realizing, and, and I think this is true on social media, I think it was probably honestly even true before, is that when you're in public spaces and people know you're a physician, you are representing the profession, whether you want to be or not. So it's just sort of, I think, part of, of what goes along with the privilege of something like being a physician. And, and I don't think that's only physicians. I think that's true for many professionals. Um, and, and I think when you start to take on more of a public presence uh, and you have a public platform, obviously that increases more and, and it does become sort of indistinguishable, you know, who you are personally from who you are professionally in terms of what you're putting out there. So I think you just have to realize that, that when you're speaking in public, uh, you know, if I'm speaking in public, people will perceive that as coming from the profession and in my case coming potentially from the Canadian Medical Association directly. So I think you need to consider that in, in the things that you say. Of course, doctors are also a broad cross spectrum of our society and we don't all have the same personal beliefs or political beliefs and that's I think normal uh, and, and welcome. I mean, we want to be diverse and we want to be representing all Canadians and obviously everyone in the country has different perspectives on things and those conversations I think are important. And I think, Part of what I, I worry about right now at the point we're at culturally is, is how we're losing some of that ability to dialogue about complex issues and, and listen and learn from each other. So I think, again, you can have an opinion and still create a space for dialogue. I think that's different than having an opinion where you're shutting all dialogue down. So I, again, I think you have to really just be considering about how you're putting yourself out there, what you're inviting. And when you do have thoughts or feelings about things, are you making putting them out there, but still creating some welcoming space for people to disagree and, and to acknowledge those disagreements and look for opportunities to learn from other people or, or wonder what you might be missing. It's never going to be perfect. Um, but I think with some thought, you, you can hopefully conduct yourself in a way that you can feel proud of and that people find relatable um, and that you can, you know, bring pride to your work and your profession and that the vast majority of your colleagues can look at what you're doing and, and feel that you're doing a good job of representing them in public. I think ultimately that has to be the goal. Yeah. And I, and I think you yourself have, have been a great example of that. Um, I guess on the flip side, right, there are physicians, there's pharmacists, there's nurses, there's other healthcare professionals um, who are part of, I guess, quite frankly, have been part of that anti-vax movement or or rhetoric um, and using, I guess, their power of influence or their credentials um, to provide weight in that space and using these same social media tools that you're describing. So where does that accountability lie and, and how does that how does that work with what you're describing as well? I think that's a really important question. And again, I think it's an example of something that really ramped up during the pandemic. You know, of course, there's always been professionals who have been 
promoters of, of misinformation before. This is not a new problem. I think what's different is the scale of it. And, and I think that's really what we saw during the pandemic is, you know, many physicians, unfortunately, I mean, by, you know, of course, still a very small minority, but enough for it to be impactful publicly, who were um, really promoting misinformation and in some cases personally profiting from it. You know, we saw people setting up clinics where they were giving uh, vaccine exemptions that weren't warranted, you know, charging to prescribe things like ivermectin. I mean, really poor practice. But I think the responsibility for that really lies with our regulatory bodies. I mean, the reason we have professional regulatory bodies is to protect the public. That's not new. And, and I think probably what those groups are having to, to come to terms with a little bit right now is they're used to regulating physicians in that individual doctor-patient relationship. And they're, I think, well-versed in how to do that. And we have processes where people can complain to our colleges and there's investigations and there's accountability. What's changing, I think, now that, that this is happening more in these online spaces and not necessarily directly with patient care all the time, is it's been a bit cha more challenging for our regulatory bodies to know how to deal with that. But we're starting, I think, to see that catch up. We have now seen some physicians who have had their licenses revoked for being peddlers of misinformation and, and yielding the power that they have. Because again, I think that is important. You, you mentioned that word, and I think it is important. We are in a position of power and privilege as professionals, and, and that means that we have a different level of responsibility in our public communications than a typical citizen does because people do view what we say as coming from an expert. So we need to be, take that responsibility seriously. And I think it's been very welcome and appropriate for the regulatory groups to uh, sanction and in some cases remove the license of, of some physicians who have been doing this. I think what's been frustrating for, for many people in the profession is the timeline for that. You know, it's, it's been slow to happen. And many of these folks have been out in the media and social media, you know, for months and months before anything actually happened to rein that behavior in or, or show the public that there was consequences to that by doing things like taking away their medical license to practice. So I think our regulatory colleges are going to have to grapple a bit with that. I think it, it's going to be an ongoing challenge. And, and I think we have to not be afraid to, to step in and intervene because it is our job to make sure the public's protected. And arguably, you know, the scale of the harm from people doing things like that is actually much greater because it's harming thousands of people at once not just one person. And obviously our goal is to do no harm in all our interactions, but I think we should not underestimate uh, the impact that misguided or intentionally misinformation spreading physicians can have. Yeah, so I, I mean, and, and it's tricky because I mean, I can imagine that there will be, and probably are some that would debate from a freedom of speech sort of perspective or the, the need for debate um in science um as being integral to what science is and you know physicians you know would you know perhaps more traditionally have those debates in a conference you're talking about different sort of um you know interventions or therapeutics or right and and different kinds of procedures the rights and wrongs of these things when you do it in a public space it probably is a bit different but i mean you, not to sort of, you know, take out sort of tried and true sort of, I guess, um, historical examples, but I mean, people like Galileo, right, you know, spoke against the conventions of his science of his day, um, and was branded a heretic in the process. Um, 
right? And history has certainly proven to be, you know, the wiser person in the room. But, you know, that took hundreds of years for that to happen. So what what's the risk, I guess, if we take that regulatory sort of approach to some of these things and and do curtail some of these things? Or is there a is there a way to find that or weave that or figure that out? I think that is absolutely a challenge. Um, but I think, you know, we also, I think, have to recognize that we do within medicine have standards of care and 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 you know boxes around what we can and, and cannot do. Um, and, and those things right now are our best decisions with our best science and are shown to be, I think, for what we know today, the best way forward for the public. So I think that it's important to have rigorous scientific debate. I think that's important. Um, and I, but I think that best happens between professionals. And a lot of what we've been seeing isn't that. I mean, it's mm -hmm. clearly people promoting things where there's no science behind what they're saying or they're misinterpreting science or the science that they're presenting has already been debunked. So I think that is a, you know, a different challenge. Of course, anyone is, is free to think and say what they want, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have the same privilege of then being a licensed physician providing care to people. So I think that to me is, is the difference. You know, it's one thing as a citizen, what you choose to do. I think it's different when you bring that in and label it and promote it for patients and you're directly causing harm. And, and that's what we've seen in the pandemic. I mean, all you need to do is look at the differences in death rates between Canada and the United States where they've had a much lower vaccination rate. Um, you know, it's, it's thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people have, have directly died as a result of, of not being vaccinated against COVID. And I think those are the very real outcomes and risks of, of what we've seen. So I think we have to balance, and it's never going to be perfect. I do appreciate that, but balance the fact that we do have high scientific standards uh, right now in medicine. We do have standards of care that we're expected to uphold. And if you want to present things to the public as a physician, you need to be within the bounds of what those things are today. If you want to have different thoughts as a private citizen and not leverage your title or your power, I think that's up to you and you're welcome to do that. But I think it's it's then up to our regulatory bodies to make sure the public's protected. And I think unfortunately over these past two years, we've just seen how dangerous this can be. And, and I, I just, my heart breaks for all the people that lost loved ones or their own lives because they had chosen not to be vaccinated with a very safe vaccine because they were misinformed. And unfortunately, that those numbers are very, very high. Yeah, it is tragic because it's it's so unavoidable. Um, so, so I mean, I guess part of what I, I guess I'm also taking away from this, I mean, we're talking about, especially in the context of social media, we're talking about influence. And, you know, I guess that many of these people have the capacity of being in social media terms influencers um how does that shift to other kinds of spaces you know maybe in a more policy oriented space around um the use of social media and these influencers like yourself to to move into that space you know we might more broadly define as advocacy Yes, I think, you know, a big part of our role and one of the competencies, competencies of being a physician is advocacy. And I think for most of us, our advocacy focuses around patients and, and what we hope we can do uh, to make a better health system for patients and also advocacy around some of those social determinants and the things that determine health in the first place. Because I think certainly all of us in healthcare recognize that 
by the time the patient's on our doorstep, uh, they already have a health problem. And many of those things could have been avoided if there was upstream interventions or resources that would address the social determinants of health that are the root cause of so many of the health problems that then uh, present to us. So I think the role of being an advocate is, is an essential role of a physician. It's essential in our one-on-one -on -one doctor patient relationships where there's often a lot of advocacy in our very broken system to get patients sometimes even basic care, access to medications, et cetera. But I think also for those of us who do have the privilege of having a more public platform, that advocacy extends to trying to influence our governments around the decision-making of how they use resources. So advocacy around things like the health system and the change that needs to happen. And of course, in my role as president of the Canadian Medical Association, a lot of my public advocacy is about calling attention, bringing the public's attention to the challenges in the system, bringing that same message to our politicians and, and with it, you know, ideas around what could make things better. Um, and, and I think that's really important. I think we've seen other uh, physicians that are really amazing advocates in the social justice space and are backing uh, things like the need for paid sick time. That's, you know, another great example of something that's really important for people's health, but might people might not traditionally think of something a physician would be talking about, you know, homelessness. We've seen some wonderful advocacy from physicians really around that challenge because they recognize someone who's homeless is not going to have health and the best thing you could do for their health is get them a home. So I think you're, you're seeing physicians, you know, advocating in all sorts of spaces for patients, for citizens around these variety of issues. And I think one of the positives about social media is it gives us a platform to reframe some of these challenges as health challenges. You know, I think another great example around that is, is substance use. You know, for many years, that was seen as sort of a personal failure or something was wrong with this person. It was treated punitively. And I think it's because of, of healthcare professionals that we've been able to shift that conversation to understand that this is a health problem. It's often related to early childhood trauma, traumatic experiences, it's related to social determinants of health, and it's nothing to do with people's individual moral failings. It's a health issue. And because of that, we're starting to be able to see interventions for folks that are actually helpful and save lives and, and help people recover. So I think that's a great example of something where bringing our knowledge has been able to shift socially and societally how we view an issue. So I, I think that space will always be really critical. And for myself, it's it's something advocacy has always been at the core of my work as a physician. It's part of my job I enjoy the most. And I felt very privileged to have a national platform to try to advance some of these issues because I know that that can have a much bigger impact than I'm ever going to have in those individual one-on-one -on -one relationships just because of the scale. Yeah, and I can imagine it's also because of it being used by the same people that you've described about going to where they are, right? You have a you have a capacity of engaging your own community in that same dialogue. Absolutely, for sure. And I think that can happen on a small level in your community. Like for myself, you know, being in the Yukon, when we were introducing the childhood vaccines in the territory, you know, I, I'm well known there as a pediatrician, I'm recognized as a trusted professional. So, you know, I was able to partner with the government, they invited me to some of their press conferences uh, to, to speak to directly to the public at large around the vaccinations and answer questions that they were receiving directly. I was also engaged with our First Nations communities doing several online events on Facebook and Instagram for their communities to answer their questions. 
So I think that's an example of where you sort of see those two things merge together. You know, your, your role as a professional in the community and your reputation with a more broader platform that allows you to engage with multiple people at the same time uh, mm -hmm. to share information. And in this case, you know, directly answer questions from the public en masse so that many people could hear the information at the same time. So I, I think those are ways that we can work together uh, to try to improve people's health and health outcomes. Yeah, it's this the speed of you know large scale change that can happen with, with those tools, and I think it your your examples and your own experience I think is a demonstration of of the you know of the optimistic power that comes with with those tools and what you can do positively um, when you know paired with the right people. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, my own personal experience with social media, I've absolutely have had the harassment and the, the negative piece. But overall, it's been much more positive. You know, I, I feel like I've had a lot of opportunity to engage with the public broadly and, and sharing positive information. And, and that's been really meaningful. But I've also had an amazing opportunity to engage with colleagues across the country and get to know people and, and partner with people on different things because we've met over social media. And now that we're getting back into some in-person events, I'm having the opportunity to then meet some of those people in person. And I've learned a huge amount myself from, from different things that colleagues have brought forward in that space, different ways of framing problems, sometimes things as simple as language or the words that we choose to use that can make you more impactful because you've shifted your language or the way that you sort of present a concept. So I've found for me overall, it's been a, a great way to connect, engage, feel like I'm part of the, the physician community more broadly and, and probably build relationships that I never would have had if it wasn't for social media, because these are folks that I wouldn't have encountered otherwise. So I think for all the, the challenges, I do think the positive aspects of, of it far outweigh some of, some of the negatives. So I'm, I'm guessing, you know, that you've come to social media somewhat honestly, and, you know, you know you're a younger physician, um, would be my judgment of that. And so do you see it is different, you know, following the stereotypical sort of demographics? And, and then what, if that's the case, and what does the CMA or other organizations do to try and, you know, um, to help some of those, uh, you know, older uh, physicians along in their journey or to discover the power of this or to to engage in it in a in a in a meaningful constructive way i think what's been so interesting for me is just i have seen every demographic of physicians on social media you know some of the folks that are very active are even retired and they've kind of now taken this on as a retirement hobby, right? They're still passionate about healthcare, they're interested in public policy, and they're really active on social media, engaging. And I suspect for them, it's also a great way to stay connected to their colleagues and the public mm -hmm. and, and find meaning and, and do something where they're still contributing. So I think that's been really interesting. I'm sort of in the middle of the pack age-wise, I'm sort of middle-aged physician. So I've got you know, kind of straddling both sides. And for me, it's absolutely been a new skill set I've had to learn because unlike my own children, I didn't grow up with any of this. Um, so there's been a bit of a learning curve. And then of course, we've got our younger generation of physicians who've grown up more with these things and I think are more naturally uh, connected to technology and, and probably have more skills. I think, you know, at, at um, CMA, we've recently established a new branch of CMA or new program that's going to be called CMA Media. And part of, of what that or part of the organization is going to be doing is 
going to be helping physicians with the skills around social media and helping people that are interested in being in those spaces do so successfully. Uh, because again, you know, just like we've been talking about, we recognize it is a skill set. And to do it well, you need to have those skills. And, you know, I know from various conferences and things I've been at recently, I think this you know, physicians in general are starting to recognize this. There's a lot of interest in, hey, how can I engage more on social media? People want to have that positive impact in their community. They see the power of it. Um, but sometimes they're a bit nervous if they don't have the skills or they're not quite sure where to get started. So I think our organization bringing some opportunities through training and workshops and likely eventually some online resources to help orientate physicians to this and, and support people who have that interest, I, I hope will be helpful because I, I do think the more of us that can be out there uh, using it positively, the more positive the experience is gonna be. Hmm. That's very cool, very interesting. Um, maybe just one last question, I'm just curious, um, what are the opportunities in this space in terms of you know perhaps more of an interprofessionalism for healthcare and, um, bringing other, you know, professions and, and members of our healthcare system together. What's been also, I think, really interesting over this sort of my own personal social media journey is exactly that, you know, it is the opportunity sometimes to have dialogue between professionals. And I think a great example of that is Twitter spaces. You know, I've been involved now in several Twitter spaces events where we have had a panel of various people, including the patient voice. Mm -hmm. um, so that's also been really interesting, right? Where you're able to have, you know, someone from nursing, someone from medicine, someone from the patient community, sometimes social workers or policy people, all having a organic conversation about different health challenges, different policy challenges. And I have found that also really rewarding because again, it, it just creates that dialogue. It allows for sharing a perspective. Um, and that's something I think that's really unique. And again, what's neat about something like Twitter spaces is, you know, anyone can jump on and listen to that um, and, and gain that information. So I think we're finding ways to learn from each other to create opportunities uh, to engage in, in dialogue together. And, and I think that's really powerful because healthcare has always been about teams. It's always been about working interprofessionally. That is the future of healthcare. It's always mattered, but I think it matters probably now more than ever, just with the complexity of patients and, and people's health concerns. And I think you know we're aspirational about involving patients more in the design and delivery of healthcare. So having them part of these conversations to share their perspective and experiences I think is a first step on that journey. So again, I think that's what's beautiful about social media is it really just does allow you to bring all sorts of people into the conversation and, and it, it makes it easier really than it ever has been in the past. Uh, I've really enjoyed the, the conversation, Catherine. I mean, you've given me a lot to think about and I hope our listeners as well. Um, I, mean, I, I mean, obviously these social media tools um, are going to be here to stay, um, maybe not these platforms forever, but certainly some versions thereof. Um, and I think as you've testament, as a testament to your own work, right? I think when used um, responsibly, um, innovatively, right? They have a tremendous power to do good. Um, and I hope that others see the opportunity to sort of similarly embrace these tools to um, to use it as part of this, we're in a transformational moment in terms of our healthcare system. And, and I think these tools are going to be an important part of that. Absolutely. I agree. This is the future and we all need to be part of it. 
Well, thank you very much, Catherine. Um, wish you very well. And yeah, I look forward to having another conversation with you in the future. But uh, thank you for spending your time with us here today. And, uh, and thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation as well. Okay, take care. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.